0: Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, my name is Sandra Collins and I'm the Director of the National Library of Ireland. I am absolutely delighted to welcome you here tonight for the fourth um, interview in the Inspiration Proclamation series. 2016 has been a very busy year for the national library of ireland we staged two exhibitions on 1916 we digitized the papers of the seven signatories and we're collecting the physical and the digital ephemera of that records how we are commemorating 1916 in this year 2016. But it's particularly in this series of interviews that we wanted to make a space for a very um, personal and reflective um, uh, interview on the nature of the Proclamation and its relevance in modern Ireland. We're very honoured to have Dr John Bowman and Edna O'Brien here tonight. Since her debut novel, The Country Girls, Edna O'Brien has written more than 20 works of fiction. She is the recipient of many awards, including the Irish Pen Lifetime Achievement Award, the American National Arts Gold Medal and the Frank O'Connor Prize. Born and raised in the west of Ireland, she has lived in London for many years. Her latest novel, The Little Red Chairs, was published to huge acclaim in 2015 and was described by James Woods in The New Yorker as a remarkable novel, a vital and engrossing experience. We're very proud in the Library to have a collection of Edna's papers and her books here in the National Library of Ireland, and we're very grateful for her long-standing support for the NLI. Can I please ask you now to note, the room is very full, I know, it's a measure of the interest in the interview here tonight, but can you please note where the emergency exits are? Um, Can you make sure that your phone is turned to silence? and um, will you? We, we're recording the interview for podcast at a later date and we'd also ask that you don't take pictures during the interview we have taken pictures and we'll publish them uh, shortly on our, our Facebook and our Twitter accounts if you would like to see them so it's my pleasure now to hand the floor to John. John Bowman is, of course, a renowned historian, writer and broadcaster, and his latest book, Ireland, the Autobiography, is shortlisted for the Gosh Energy Ireland Book Awards 2016. Thank you, Edna. Thank you, John. Uh,
1: thank, thank you, Sandra. And I think our guest has been... Um, introduced comprehensively there. So can I just begin, uh, Edna O'Brien, by asking you that as a schoolgirl, as a schoolgirl, what did the whole story of 1916 mean to you as as you were growing up in Clare?
2: Well, it meant something almost close to religion. The image of uh, Patrick Pierce. uh, One connected it with sainthood and I remember very clearly uh, memorizing the lines. My education was rather meager in some ways, but fervent in another way. And I remember just the lines of that poem said Connolly to, from Yeats, said Connolly to Pierce, there's nothing but our own red blood will make a right rose tree. Now that is very similar to Calvary, that the blood was, and I was very hot on suffering as a young child. I still am, perhaps. (laughs) Uh, The idea of the, the blood made it so personal as well. I didn't, nor would ever claim to know that much about the rebellion. All I knew was that it divided people. It divided families. In our house, at uh, just before Christmas, some of the houses who had a f- at least a table and a few card chairs, as they were called, would raffle. They'd have card games raffling for a turkey or a goose. And one of the – anyhow, our house was one of the places. All would rather like Portrait of the Artist in the chapter on Christmas Day when um, Dan, you know Dante and the argument about Parnell, all would begin so friendly. My mother had made sausage rolls; everything was ordained to be a happy evening, until the dreaded spectre of politics and this passion about Michael Collins. I know it's going on from as a consequence of the rebellion. This animosity, this passion between the talk, between De Valera, Michael Collins and so on, card games thwarted, cards thrown at me. And all I thought was, I don't really understand this, but I know we come, I come, we all do, from a very passionate and contentious race. And as the years went on, and I maybe read a little more or pondered a little more, What struck me as very strange. There had been Robert Emmett, there had been Wolf Tone, there had been failed botched uh, rebellions as they were called down the years. And why this failed rebellion, it did fail. Many were executed and 400 and something were killed in crossfire, uh, civilians. And Joe Duffy wrote a very interesting book about the children of 1916. But why it more than any other thing, well, apart from the famine, or any other thing in our history, why it resonated not only then, but now and increasingly? And I can't explain it, but I did read one thing that struck me as very interesting. That is uh, it's a book of Charles Townsend that you know as well. And he said there was almost a mythic or occult dimension to how much this rebellion, these things, how it seeped into the consciousness of people who didn't know much about it but knew that it was something huge. And of course, more than anything in the world at large, Yeats's great poem written, let us not forget, in an English country house. When he heard news of the rebellion on the wireless, he retreated to a room and wrote Easter 1916. And I don't think in France, Russia, America, I mean, in any country that any poet has made such a great, albeit mythic, poem about an event. I mean, there are many poets who have written about French Revolution, but Yeats's poem, A Terrible Beauty Is Born, which of course he slightly um, backtracked on <laughs> as time went on, it hit so that the rebellion had, forgive the cliché phrase, it had many things going for it. It had tragedy. It had failure that wasn't regarded as failure from the previous rebellions, it had i, I don't know how many were, were executed. There's a slight, not uh, argument, difference in the 16, numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. yes, and all that um, buried in limestone pits, and all the histrionic part of it, Maud Gonne, uh, who, who, was, who you know was infuriated about it, but it captured. It was almost like something that didn't happen but was in a book or in a television, if we think of modern times. it had the idea of Joseph Mary Plunkett and Grace Gifford marrying, and um, nurses, women, uh, bringing messages out into the street, and also a marvelous thing. I remember reading, because I wrote once, uh, never got anywhere. that's the writing life, I might in parenthesis say. I wrote, I spent four years writing about Yeats and Maud gone. Uh, this is a little while back now, but I did do it. And I remember being very t- struck by aspects of the rebellion as in what I read and Major MacBride, who had fought in the, John MacBride, Major McBride, he had fought in the Boer War, as you know. He was not part of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. He was not even part of the rebellion, as you probably know better than me. He was cycling by. He asked, what's happening? What's happening is what's happening. And he said, I think I'm the only man among you who's ever fired a shot, which is probably the truth. So not only were they not proper soldiers, I mean, they were idealists. Some people think differently. And I don't like when some people, over the years, denounce them and, you know, there's a terrible thing happened in our country and in many countries called revisionism. I don't like revisionists. History is history. Facts are facts. I don't want it thwarted by opinion. I want to be told, as far as possible, how many people, whatever happened. Anyhow, McBride, as you know, joined. So, different stories, and really they are stories, but they have truth, all co- converged to make this a great tragic blood sacrifice that held both a religious and a political context. It was Patrick Pierce, as you know. was So, growing up, just to I keep, you can interrupt me at any time, um, I mean, I, I was, we were as impressed in County Clare in Drewsboro that De Valera went to Mass every day. Well, you know, on reflection, it doesn't matter whether De Valera went to Mass every day or not, but it did then, because it knitted the two things. It knitted God and bang, 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 even though the bang, bang, bang was pretty futile. Their weapons were, their, their amount of weapons and, and having to, and also the, the organization was, to put it mildly, patchy. I mean, it was written by hand by Pierce on a cut paper like that. Uh, the plan of where they were to convene and what they were to do, but it was, I don't mean to denigrate him, but it had a kind of schoolboy element, they knew nothing about war. And that made them, in a sense, more tragic because, of course, the words of the proclamation are very beautiful. They're very stirring and they're very poetic. So it was as much about poetry, although Yeats being the prime poet, but it was as much about poetry as it was about politics or history. And when you think of today's politicians of all colors and creeds in all countries with their spin doctors, the words of that proclamation are equal to Abraham Lincoln's words, which are remarkable, which are so great and so stirring. Uh, So I remembered, uh, I, I kind of gathered in bits of it And I never liked when I read that um, by some academics, forgive any academics who are in the room, I read a lot of criticism. And it seemed to me that that criticism was not founded on any real feeling of thinking, what must it have been for those men pretty unarmed do this, it's not, it's not a jaunt. It's something very noble, even if it failed. And I would not like to question that nobility. They were not thugs. They were not, this much-used word, and indeed you have only to look at our television to know, they were not terrorists. They were soldiers with ideals and not great as soldiers.
1: I know that you wanted to read uh, this poem, because Yeats y- is important to you. So can I invite you then to, to Easter 1916?
2: Well, I shall try. You probably all know it so well. But you can hear it. just like book at bedtime. <laughs> One more time. My god, is it this long? Oh, John, i better. I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter or desk among grey 18th century houses. I have passed with a nod of the head, or polite, meaningless words, or have lingered a while and said polite, meaningless words, and thought before I had done of a mocking tale or a gibe, to please a companion around the fire at the club, being certain that they and I would lived where motley is worn, all changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. That woman's days were spent in ignorant goodwill, her nights in argument, until her voice, more gone, he means, until her voice grew shrill, What voice more sweet than hers when young and beautiful? She rode to Harrier's, actually Constance Markovitz, sorry. This man had kept a school and rode our winged horse. This other, his helper and friend, was coming into his force. He might have won fame in the end. So sensitive his nature seemed, so daring and sweet his thought. The other man, I had dreamed a drunken, vainglorious lout. He had done most bitter wrong to some who are near my heart, yet I number him in the song. He too has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He too has changed in his turn, transformed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. Hearts with one purpose alone through summer and winter, seem enchanted to a stone. To trouble the living stream, the horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range from cloud to burning cloud. Minute by minute, they change. A shadow of cloud on the stream changes minute by minute. A horse hoof slides on the brim, and a horse splashes with it. The long-legged moorhens dive, and hens to moorcock's call, minute by minute, they live. The stone's in the midst of all. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when may it suffice that is heaven's part, our part, to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child, when sleep has come at last, or limbs that had run wild, was it but nightfall? No, no, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream, enough to know they dreamed and are dead. And what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in verse. MacDonough and McBride and Connolly and Pierce now and in time to be wherever green is worn are changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. 25th of September nineteen sixty. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. What? What? Every time I read that poem, and even now more strenuously, it it seeps with love. It is a poem where these p- people and even the moorhens, and even the horse splashing, that it was all contributing towards this action, fueled by love. It was of course fueled by the need for freedom, but it is not a poem of hatred.
1: Do you recall at all 1966 and the Golden Jubilee of 1916?
2: I recall some of it I was going through my hard-suffering time. (laughs) My relegate, more than that, my furious time. My first book was published in 1960. And there followed a sequence of books, all with the privilege of being banned. So I was more concerned (laughs) about (laughs) self-preservation from the Golden Jubilee, I'm so sorry. Because when that happens to one, um, it, I now know that it was farcical, the, the method of banning, three men. Sorry to the gentlemen in the room, but there was men. Maybe women would have done the same. Maybe women submitted the stuff for banning, who knows? Marked the passages, But they were yeah. nameless, and their address was in some street off Grafton Street. But they, um, nobody knew who they were, and the, it was comic was also iniquitous. The way of banning was the following. Anyone down the country, as Miles Ligopolin would call it, any of the turnip snaggers or the Kulshis, could write out two lines in the book, send it without name, without address, for the attention of these. And if you got three letters, and it could have been written by the same person, but I'm sure there were many people dying to write, the book was banned. Now that If that is one of the consequences of a nobly intentioned rebellion revolution, whichever word we chose to use, we have to say things went very askew in the country. Things went very downhill. Things went from poetry to ignorance. Things went from a cultural expansion to a shrinking, to a narrowness, which both church and state were instrumental in, 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 in beginning, in, in cementing, and in protecting. I worked in a chemist's shop in the Cabra Road, and at the time I was trying to write and failing and trying, and I used to write pieces for the Irish press uh, which caused great offence in my local village because some people bought the Irish independent, some bought the Irish, you see, politics leaks into everything. But I remember thinking at that time, that writing was probably a bit of a dangerous occupation. I wrote silly things about clouds and, you know, the sea lapping and reading Yeats, but not learning from Yeats. You know, he says, Irish poets learn your trade. Well, I was mixing medicines all day and weighing babies, then going to lectures. In short, you asked me about 1966. By then, I had written mm, the Country Girls trilogy and maybe one beginning one more book. And I did feel, forgive me for saying this, I did feel safer. Not that I ever feel safe on this earth, I'd like to mention. But I did feel safer across the water. The reason being, writing is hard work. Every every job is hard work. Writing is harder work than, let us say, acting or sculpting. And the reason is, and any of the great writers that I love, like Mr. Beckett and Mr. Joyce, who are really (coughs) God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for me. Uh, To do it, you have to have absolute, unswerving dedication, and you have to have absolute patience that every word has to be as great, as accurate, as moving, as musical, as wild, as subversive, and as loveful. Now that, I'm not saying I have achieved that, but it's what I wanted to achieve from day one. I had not read much, but I can assure you, when I did read something great, I learned from it. I didn't didn't just think, oh, that's great, I was learning. So I felt hard done by, and I got some very uh, uh, cruel letters and you're insecure, you, I, insecure as a writer. And though you might not expect garlands, they would be welcome. But <laughs> while you're not expecting garlands, you don't want to be called a smear in Irish womanhood. You don't want to get ugly letters drowning in your own sewerage. I did get one, I got a few comic letters. One said, Miss O'Brien, I have not met you, but I feel you are a lusty woman. (laughs) Now, most of them did not say that sort of thing. But his letter concluded, may I meet you because I would, (laughs) prepare yourself for this. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to lick between your toes. (laughs) That was one of the more cordial letters. (laughs) But what, what these letters and what my experience taught me was, The country was in a very prejudiced prejudiced mental state. And working in the chemist shop, I had occasion to have, well, this from Archbishop McQuaid. For a brief moment, again, this is rather intimate, but I know you'll forgive it. For a brief moment, (laughs) tampons were allowed in by the they were allowed in, so they didn't get stopped. Well, we had some in the chemist's shop for 24 hours, because the moment uh, Archbishop McQuaid learned of this, because he decided tampons were an excitement. <laughs> now, all this was filtering into my mind when I was, this is getting away from 1960, I'm sorry. <laughs> but you can get that. <laughs> It was filtering in my mind as I was trying to, to write. And of course, I, I have to tell you, I am very, very, I'm very glad I'm an Irish woman. And I'm very glad I came from the people I came from and the parish I came from. That doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of trouble and bruhaha But what they gave me is a story there was, everything was full of story. And also, and I'm not being grandiose about it. I came from a lovely house, Drewsborough, there was, money was gone, but it was fields with forts and cairns and gave me, which I am glad of, some sense of mythology and ancientness. Because a book to have any worth even though it might seem just a simple little story like the country girls, two girls in a convent trying to come to Dublin. Unless a book has some other inner secret agenda to it, it doesn't last. And if you write books, you want them to last. So my upbringing was uh, not very educated, but it was filled with passion, and it was filled with secrets, and I think, without the actual parents I had, particularly my own mother, and I'll just digress, then we'll get back to the big thing. My mother was a born poet who hated the written word. She would have wished me to be anything, especially an air hostess, that was her principal. (laughs) And yet, she wrote to me every day of her life, especially when I moved away, I eloped as well, which of course was a crime. It was also a mistake, but that's another story. <laughs> and She wrote me in the most... she, she if, if my mother had written a book, it would be in the language of Molly Bloom, but not the sexuality and the eroticism, because it was a complete stream of consciousness. Sentences just tumbled into other sentences. They were graphic. They're about when blackberries are ripe, they were about this, they were about that. But they were poetic, they are poetic. And I find it a paradox that the mother who would not approve of my books and would not read them and was ashamed of the little burning and so on in the chapel grounds, that she had a grasp of leaping imagination. And of course, she gave me some of it. Even though she would have loved more than anything that I'd never published a word. And that's hard because I know families who bolster each other up, who say, Oh, did you, you know, they tell you how great they're. Well, I didn't have any of that. It was, whew, all the time. And yet, sweet are the uses of adversity, which, like a toad, ugly and venomous wears yet a precious jewel in its head." So the precious jewel that I was given was my own longing. I'll I'll tell you, and I know you will believe me, it was as important to me as God. In fact, I mixed up literature and God. Big mistake morally. Not necessarily a big mistake aesthetically. So. my upbringing, my childhood, is a consequence. Archbishop McQuaid and the tampons, the kind of um, banning of books, the languages you have in your wonderful treasury, a book, the language of the messenger. I got the messenger. A woman got the messenger. And I'm sure you all know the little magazine. And it was loaned to us. And it was seeping with I don't think you can cross your legs even. I mean, it was seeping with a, uh, uh, commandments of a kind. But there was one person. There's always one woman in every village that's a little bit wild. It wasn't me. I was very good. <laughs> there was one, the cover of The Messenger is a, is a dark red, as you know, but you could bruise it and actually get rouge from <laughs> it. So why I tell you that little minor And many attitude, women did, didn't they? Many, not that many, but a few. Yeah. But it was this overlapping of strict morality and you know, mischief.
1: Is it a sin to wear a lipstick was one of the questions sent to this Jesuit. He was an agony Jesuit, as in agony at. Yeah. He had this question it's box. It's
2: wonderful.
1: Is yeah. it a sin to wear a lipstick? Yeah.
2: So, it's a it's a long way from your first question, but I think I think we are the consequence of our own history.
1: And what we did with our independence when we got it, we closed down church and state, as you said, became encouraged the censorship, but they got encouragement too from the local librarian, who could be a censor too.
2: Yeah, because it was that was what they were told to do. That was what, that was the education. There's a beautiful song that Pete Seeger used to sing about the shoals of herrings. That's your education, catching shoals of herrings. The education here that we had in Ireland and that none of us can be immune from, and we certainly remember, was extremely claustrophobic, strangled, narrow, and it was all about not doing wrong. And each person, it resembles in some way, I mean not as bad as Soviet Russia, but it resembles it in this sense that your neighbor was also your judge, that your neighbor could tell you. uh, And that made for suspicion, which it does. But if you were to look back on, for instance, the books that were banned, James Joyce, the great god, was never banned and guess why? He was never let in. So <laughs> there was no problem. Beckett was called the blasphemer and uh, he loved being called because it goes with Beckett, Beckett the blasphemer. and But also European writers, Alberto Moravio, women of Rome, there was this, it's so sad. It took the country ages to get to some, enlightened and open. I'm not saying all oh, literature is great, but access to it should be there. And I feel I would love to know, for instance, if Patrick Pierce's ghost came back. Or the others, but Pierce is somehow the one that we most uh, is image and opening St. Ender's School and then becoming this vociferous soldiering person. If he were to walk into this library now with that famous phrase, hindsight, would he approve of the immediate consequence of the rebellion? And I don't even mean the Civil War or the Civil War. I mean the culture that followed it. Is that what he wanted? Or would he approve our bikini-clad society? What would be his... I can't answer it, but I have a terrible feeling that he was not a born artist. He wrote some poetry, as you know. Now, not all artists are that open, but they can be. Voltaire, great writers have a, a think they have a thinking gift as well as a creative gift. But Pierce's poem, "You know, the mother, my two strong sons." that I have seen to break their strength, go out and die, they in a few bloody cause for a glorious thing. And I will then say their names to my own heart. It's a bit like the language in The Messenger. It's not exactly I have seen them at the close of day. So it would be interesting to know if that narrowness was unconsciously um, Inherent and conceived, not all of them. Not um, James Connolly, definitely. And I read something on the way yesterday because I knew we would be seeing each other, and it interested me very much about how how bitter memories are in societies. I was here, not very active, but I was here during the celebrations, you know, this year, and for they were as everyone has said, and as Olivia Leary and newspapers have reported, they were very jovial, they were happy, they weren't mudslinging, and they were in the country as well as in the city, but they were an occasion, whatever colour your politics are, they were an occasion to, to remember and even to celebrate. They weren't an occasion to mudsling or to start riots. Kevin Barry, the author, in, a, in a, a little book I read yesterday, got out by Stinging Fly, um, where a publisher I admire very much, Declan Mead, they had extracts from different authors about you know, their memories, or not their memories, their impressions of what they heard. And Kevin Barry, who lived apparently in Edinburgh sometime, every year in Edinburgh, in Scotland, in Edinburgh, there's a, Joseph, there's a James Connolly um, march. Police fisticuffs the lot. So we could perhaps generalize and say that Ireland is not embittered, or certainly not as embittered as it seems in Scotland. And I think that is a very good thing because none of us knows what was in the minds of those men? None of us had lived under British rule. None of us had, had famine. None of us have had schools heads closed down, so we had to go to hedge schools. None of us had our all our freedom sabotaged. It's true. So when it came, and this is also true, that many Irish people, and they were also brave, went to fight in the First World War. So the leaders of the rebellion and their cohorts and everything are accused of a terrible betrayal. But what I would like to say, because I'm trying to put myself in the minds of what they had been fed, of the, I mean, the hardship, the penal laws, the, the, the evictions, they're awful. They can't be denied that they are. I'm not a revisionist, I've read all this stuff when I was writing. So, from their point of view, England was the enemy. They were not thinking of a European war in terms of more, if you like, uh, less occupied countries, where it was an occupied land. So, I do not blame or accuse them. But I also asked the question, and I would like anyone in this room that might think, or you might have an answer. What would have been the case, the sequence of history, if the rebellion had not happened at all? Did it make things better or did it make things worse? What do you think? (laughs)
1: Well, this is your show. (laughs) <laughs> so I'm not ducking the question, but it's, it's too long, it would be too long an answer, and it's a, a great, one of the great what-ifs of history. But I want to come back to a man you mentioned earlier, because he played a part, and I think in a documentary that I made about him, I was the first person to find the document. I know you've made reference to it as well, and it's about John Charles McQuaid and you. And when you published The Lonely Girl yeah. in 1962, uh, I think that was the original title of August is a wicked no,
2: no, it was the original title of a book that they called Girl with Green Eyes. Girl with then.
1: Green Eyes, yes. That's what it became.
2: They thought the lonely girl was depressing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Archbishop McQuaid, he read the book, and when he saw a favorable mention of it and of your work in the London publication, The Catholic Herald, yeah. he wrote to Cardinal Godfrey
2: yeah.
1: of Westminster. And McQuaid told Godfrey that he'd been so surprised that such stuff would be printed that he had loaned the book overnight to the Minister for Justice, who returned the next day to express his disgust and revulsion. Yes, disgust was everything. And quote, this is what McQuaid says, like so many decent Catholic men with growing families, he was just beaten by the outlook and descriptions. This young minister was none other than Charles Hawley, <laughs> who." Who it must it must be presumed was wiping McQuaid's eye, with this pretense at being beaten. It must be presumed what? He, he was he was wiping McQuaid's eye because we. Whatever. You mean he was
2: appeasing him, flattering? He, him. Yes,
1: he was flattering him. That he he gave him this line.
2: Well, we wonder. He um. Yes, he was being political. He he was a minister for culture and. Uh, for, for justice at that yeah, time, yeah, justice. Because they are lumping culture with other things. Agriculture. Well, then it was
1: justice, <laughs> but it included censorship. <laughs> yes, yes. But so that's why he was given the book. But I, we, from what we know about Charles Holley, we have to presume. Well, that I he have was...
2: to say, I often I met Charles he was He's rather flirtatious man. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> purported to tell me that he loved my writing. <laughs> I knew none of this. Um, Thank God I didn't know this correspondence because <laughs> it would have made me even feel worse and um in short, uh he was a man of two minds you would say I'm putting it nicely what I find so hilarious about it was the notion i mean the country girls honestly is as harmless as they come but what what made it what rose the you know red rag to the gallic bull phrase was. A, I was a woman in my 20s. There hadn't been much tradition. There was Elizabeth Bourne woman, but she was, uh, she was Protestant, so that didn't count. And there was uh, Kate O'Brien, who, very sensibly, or a great part of her life, lived in Spain and smoked Spanish cigarettes. So I also, they, so they were two women, but they weren't, they didn't, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, they didn't kind of stir the, the ground in the same way. What the country goes, what it did by chance, because I didn't set out to write um, a book that would either cause offence. I didn't even think like that. I think, how do I make, how can I make this story? I waken quickly and sat up in bed abruptly. It is only when I am anxious that I waken easily. And for a minute I could not remember, then I did the old reason. My father, he had not come home." That was the first lines. So I was writing a little elegy, if I may use such a word, for my own loneliness and childhood and for my separation from Ireland. I wasn't writing to offend them. I didn't even think of the bishop reading it, it didn't occur. <laughs> but it stirred because it's written in a very, uh, the reason I quoted the first two or three lines, it's written in a confiding um, girl's voice that is almost like a diary. So it seemed as if I hadn't written a work of fiction, which I had. If I wanted to write a different kind of book, I'd have chosen totally different method. So, It got under people's skin because it was so intimate, and because I was a woman, and that women do have a harder time in the literary field, I can assure you, and because it was thought, again, uh, like what's happening in a much larger scale in America at this moment, it was thought that I had somehow betrayed my country. Now, I can see no... Evidence of that, maybe I'm biased, but I don't see, I hadn't betrayed my country. I had shown up, as I later did, with down by the river and in the forest, aspects of my country that maybe some people would rather was put down under the sod. I don't feel like that. I feel a witness to my own experience of the land I'm from and what I see around me. And I feel that's justified. I am not in the same league as Charles Dickens, whom I worship, but he, reco- he, was, he recorded the history of the world. That's putting it very prosaic, of the world around him. So, all that conspired: the different things, being a woman, then the banning, and the sense. And there was a very, there was one priest who defended me. He was called. Father Peter Connolly from Maynooth. So somebody from Oncola in County Limerick decided, oh, the things I have been through, you would not, yes, there should be a public meeting in Limerick with me, Father Connolly, uh, the man from Oncola, and a live audience. Well, I was a little bit gibbery sitting down. I was even more gibbery as time went on, because again and again, and this is a, an example of, it's good to come from a small country, but it's also not good. Again and again, the objection was, why did I not live in Ireland? By not living in Ireland, I had betrayed Ireland. And I said, well, there are two, techni- there are two reasons technically. I was married to a man uh, who wanted to move to England. He was half Irish, half German. But I said, and I have to say this, which will to them, and I say it again, which was not made me popular. I said, I doubt that I could have written the book I have written under the threat of the watchfulness that sent the guardians. I could not have done it. I could not have done it, and that is the truth. Well, of course, that exorcised them even more which proved that I did hate my country. And I said, I want to say something that I hope someone will believe, and it's this. You could write an editorial full of bile, full of hatred, and it would be very effective. You cannot write a work of fiction of seventy or 80,000 words of that. It would be no good. The book is full of feeling. It's As I said, an elegy, every field, every brook, every gateway, every bit of frost on a window, every tree, I grew up in a house surrounded by trees. Well, they were both my imagery, visual imagery, my emotional imagery, and my psychic imagery. Everything was stamped on me, like stamping an animal, you know, that, everything that happened to me touched me, touched me that I felt. I wrote, for instance, one story called A Scandalous Woman, came after that, which was a woman who fell from grace, in short, became pregnant. And I spoke, and it was true for that time, and we can't ignore our own history. We can't ignore it. And I spoke of ours because this poor woman then had to marry the person and still lived under it of ours being a, a land of strange and sacrificial women. And it was true. I saw my mother and all the women around me. No man and woman ever went into a shop together, ever went for a walk together at mass. Men on one side, women are other. And there was this real separation between them. There was one couple, they were called uh, Jack Darling and Betty Honey or something. Well, they used to link when they went out for a walk. And I promise you, it was regarded as a mortal sin. (laughs) So uh, you can't ignore... They were married. Huh? They were married? Oh, God. the closest that my experience, and it's so different now, you can't believe, in I was born in 1930, and the closest in my literature, although I've said Joyce and Beckett are the gods and they are for me, the closest in literature for me was the writings of the Russians, and especially Chekhov, because uh, Russia before the revolution, and the time of serfs and everything. There was something in the way Chekhov wrote, and Chekhov is flawless, is flawless, He is the greatest writer imaginable. His works, Joyce, you know, is a writer, and makes sure that you know he's a writer, and takes the English language and smashes it up, and reassembles it, and makes it extraordinary. But he says, I am the writer, I am infallible. Chekhov is the very opposite in that his writing is like, it's ineffable, it's like something in nature. There seems to be no stress, no pressure, except the actual realization of the world he knew. And that was an enormous help to me, because he wrote about things I wanted to write about, like a school teacher, for instance, is in love with a man who is a little bit higher up on the scale, and it's a story of Chekhov's. I think it's called The Schoolmistress. She hardly ever meets this man because he's not in his society. But once a month, she has to go a long way in a cart and a horse to draw her wages, and sometimes on that long, uncomfortable, <laughs> bumpy ride right, on bad roads and across parts of Russia. To get to the capital to hand in her, she glimpses this man. Now that, to me, was something that could have happened to me, but beautifully and tenderly, and intricately—there's a word—intricately written. So when I had all the commotion, it hasn't fully ceased, you know. When I had all the commotion, I felt the writers, the ones I loved, and some great poets, I felt that they had pulled me through. They carried me through in my secret self, because I knew that if I followed them, and not Archbishop McQuaid, and not Charles Hawley, and not the people in my village, and not my own mother, but if I kept with those people, they'd give me a hand. I wrote a poem eight years ago when uh, President Obama was running – well, he was running and then got elected. And I said, the ones were something like, the ones who waited on the roadside for you waited and were plenished. And something, they something in a beautiful, baffling synthesis. And although I feel politically uh, aware, and have my feelings which are very strong about things, Uh, otherwise I wouldn't have written the little red chairs. I know that language, the alchemy of language, the power of language, the restorative thing of language, it doesn't stop wars, but by God, it helps people. But that to me, is the holy of the holiest, without in any way wanting to seem sentimental or conceited, because that's what I set out to be in some way part of. And therefore all the attacks and the relegation and the insults and the mockery, and I have had a great deal of it, more than I think any writer in this country, and I'm not exaggerating. They're there to be found. I don't know why I've had so much, except I know that it's a very nice feeling to come through.
1: I think you've also had a claim, and that that is represented in the audience and the size of our audience this evening, and in the fact that so many wanted to come for whom we didn't have space. So you were, in a way, at a tipping point in this whole change in Ireland. And let me just finish, therefore, on the McQuaid story, because not only did Hoey, as it were, wipe, like McQuaid, wipe McQuaid's eye, as I believe he did, but Godfrey, Cardinal Godfrey reassured McQuaid, but again, I don't think he followed this through, that he too was startled by your prose. And he, he said he had written to the new editor of the Catholic Herald, who was Desmond Fisher, who was a, an Irishman. He died just recently. And Fisher, when this was brought to his attention recently, had no recollection of any rebuke from Godfrey and presumed that Godfrey was just humoring McQuaid. So I think we see a tipping point here where you're coming up the scale and McQuaid is becoming deeply unfashionable and a control freak who is about to lose his power because he, in a way, had abused
2: it so much. He had abused it. He had abused it. Uh, he, he was he was like, well, I mean, stronger word than policeman. He policed everything. He had a telescope in which he watched people walking out in Killiany, a residence out there as well, and how close they were walking. He was driven every night around Dublin to look at shop windows. And if any of the mannequins seemed a little suggestive, <laughs> Or if they were naked. If they hadn't, if they hadn't dressed by the, the dummies, latest fashion. there was problems. Yeah. So he infiltrated. <coughs> it was like uh, Joseph McCarthy in the United States in the time of the communist. Um, it's the very same. It's first of all, paranoid. It's secondly, control freak. And it's thirdly, um, they assume a godlike uh, status. and fourthly, very important, everyone was afraid of him. Nobody, I mean, Noel Brown tried to, with the, uh, Dr. Noel Brown, with the scheme of the mother and child, well, that didn't get far. So his power was all pervasive, and nobody, I mean, Charles he would go and, your grace, and kiss his ring and say, I agree with you, it is this, it is this. And that is why somebody coined the phrase, it's true of every country, of every society, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely, it does. You see it now, you see it in Russia, you see it everywhere.
1: But despite your complaints about the brickbats that you've endured as a woman writer and so on, do you not also see that now your time has come and that you've prevailed in a way that say the McQuaid tradition has not?
2: Well, I was one of the people, again, accidentally, through history and maybe my own um, acuteness of, uh, acute, I I know I'm not that cute with making money, so it's (laughs) acute, of observing. I was just one of the people, if you like, who made a small little change in the transition through my books, not through marching, not through becoming a politician, Uh, I wouldn't have the patience to be a politician, to tell you the truth. Uh, In fact, there's a very funny thing I've just remembered about Charles Haughey. I mentioned to you that he was flirtatious, putting it mildly. So he once said to me, I have a very good idea for you. Oh, I said, what is that? He said, I'll make you an ambassador. What country, I said. (laughs) 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 It was some obscure country. It wasn't like uh, I said to him, because um, I have manners, but I'm also quite direct, I said, I don't think I'd be political enough or dishonest enough for the job. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, um, he knew what I was saying, because I don't, I don't think two-facedness is a good thing in anybody but it's the nature of politics. And I, I know some very nice ambassadors, so I'm not denigrating the profession, but I'd rather stick to writing. Yeah.
1: Well, the definition of an ambassador, it's sexist. It presumes that it's a he. is a gentleman who's sent abroad to tell lies about his own country. <laughs> yes,
2: <laughs> and, to, and to, to, so, to the waters, to still yeah. the waters, yeah. yeah.
1: Are there, I'm sure I know there are questions in the room. Can we have questions for Edna O'Brien? Yes, here.
3: Yeah, so uh, the, my, my grandfather lived in Drewsborough, the Drewsborough Road, Jim Bowen. Yes.
1: And my microphone is coming, so sorry, the entire room can hear you. you.
3: Yeah. beg your pardon. And, uh, can you start and, again? Yeah, yeah, my grandfather, Jim Bowen, lived in Drewsborough. yeah. And yeah. we used to go down every summer as uh, youngsters. And we became, became aware of your family, yeah. became aware of your dad and your mum. But the, point of, the question I was going to ask is in relation to De Valera. My grandfather uh, initially really supported Dev. thought he was terrific.
2: Sorry, your grandfather? He su- really
3: supported De Valera. Yeah. And uh, what I wanted to know is why... Uh, I know there was the, the, uh, the Civil War when he said De Valera was going to put brother against brother. Yeah. But why was Claire Clare seemed to be a kind of... It was in turmoil... And De Valera was always in town. <laughs> De Valera picked East Clare as his, as his constituency.
1: Now, there was a by-election there, which is the one he wanted to run next. Yes. So that's how he became a Clare man. So mm. I'm just yeah. curious. Was,
3: There's so many yeah. things I could talk to you about our trips up and down to Clare. But my grandfather was very friendly with your dad. But the part that always struck me was this sudden split from supporting De Valera to going against him. And East Clare... To, to us was a great place to go to, and were, we had marvelous times in the bog beside We Used to go in and out there, yes. And we used to go to the Creamery, where you spoke about before, uh, in, in your interview last I week. I know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but this thing always puzzled me. This this terrible dichotomy between um, uh, a, a county that hadn't wasn't renowned for this particular uh, involvement in politics, but yet it became the hotbed almost. And
2: you could take the temperature of the rest of the country from East Clare. Well, probably because de Valera's uh, constituency was Clare. I think that inflamed it and made it in a way more personal. And therefore the division was more. I I I, I remember um, the you know, de Valera coming to Ennis. I wasn't there, but hearing about it. But also questions thrown at... Um, there was a Fianna Fall minister that spoke in Skarv, where I come, well, near Tungmany, and he was a minister for agriculture. So um, he was heckled. Again, it was all very impassioned. It was, and, and he was. I remember the story. He was heckled, and uh, he was asked what he had done for the country as minister for agriculture. And his reply: It was all very verbally wound up. His reply was to the man who asked him the question, take off your boots and you will know. He made him, he insulted him. There's not really much I can say about it except it happened. So we'll move on to the next question. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah, the microphone just behind you. I'll, I'll favor somebody close to the microphone and then we'll get one down to you. Yes.
2: Edna, I was very taken with your book, uh, The Little Red Chairs. And it's a book that keeps going around in my head all the time since I've read it. But thank I'd you. love to know, how did you begin with it? Um, how did it come to you, the story? And if there's anything you'd like to say about that? Well, thank you very much. I'm, I, the story, The Little Red Chairs, is about a, a war criminal who comes to a small village in the west of Ireland manifestly as a healer and indeed is a healer and heals with stones that he gathers from the river. People fall for him. People are cured to some extent by him. People are intrigued by him. And one woman, to her peril, falls very badly, or madly, whatever the word is, in love with him. The story came to me f- from two directions. One is always waiting for a story. Uh, well, I'm always waiting for a story, let me. First of all, the world around me, the world around us, I cannot be unaware of it. I cannot be unaware of the carnage, the migration, the refugees, the camps, the everything that is happening in our world. You look at television, it is just, you cannot ignore it, and yet you are helpless. You send 100 pounds to Red Cross or whatever, I wanted to write a book that, insofar as I could, dealt in some way, through fiction, with some of the butchery and brutality that is happening in our world, your world, my world. I for ages had thought about it and could not find a theme. I had my theme, sorry, could not find a framework, a story. You can't just write, you know, sounding off about what you feel. That's not a story. That's, again, that's an editorial. And I was in Europe uh, on a little errand, as I call them, and I saw Vladimir Karadigic, the beast of Bosnia, as he was called, being taken off a bus. Uh, He looked completely transformed. He had, in, when I would seen him 12 years prior on television, he was a soldiering man with bouffant hair, and he's going up hills, bang, bang. Uh, he uh, was the architecture of that war, of the siege of Sarajevo, the message of sara I knew all that. I mean, it was... In, but here was this man transformed, the healer, his hands like that, his ponytail, his black robe. And I thought... Ah, I think I can write a story on the... I, I, I knew I had something I could write. I'd also read about Nazi war criminals who emigrated to South America and are suddenly, in, they fit into the society, they wash their cars, they sing carols at Christmas Eve, they give their neighbors mince pies and so on. Not a shred of, of what they did all obliterated. So I decided that I would research very much, very extensively. But my, my theme was the duality. How can a man with so much blood, how can a man take the hands of, or the neck of a woman or a child or a boy in a, in a surgery? and County Roscommon and be so convincing? How can a man be so charming and informed and magnetic that a woman who isn't a fool, she's a bit of a romantic, falls in love? So that by getting that framework, I was able to have my old theme, which is love, but also my more Uh, themes as I've got older, my feeling of outrage of what man is doing to man happening as we speak in Aleppo at this very moment. The butchery, the beheading, that this, I mean, we've read things from the Middle Ages, we've read history, we've read the Bible, but what is happening now surpasses that. But yet I wanted to make a human readable story Because again, it's not that I not to mollify a reader, but to to have somebody rang me for a phone interview the other day and said why your books, your material is so um, dark and yet people or she was speaking for herself, but also this was a French interview. She said people love your books, some do. And I said a book has to, a lot, no matter how dark it is, a book has to have the radiance of language, just as a poem does. So I was blessed with that uh, that series of different um, chants or fluke. and I did go to The Hague to uh, many times when the trial his tri- he was on trial in the court international court. And what made me even more furiated than I had been before I went, was the complete obliteration of what he had done. Had not done it. There were witnesses there, the few that that were alive, uh, telling their story. He was going, he was calling over his cohorts, making notes, refuting it utterly. That was as bad for me as the things he did. It was totally... So, it was a theme given to me by history, by the world around me, and one I had to work uh, exceedingly hard on to make it a human story and not a B-movie. It is so easy with material like that to Uh. Lair upon the ugliness. Yes, I have a chapter in it that is, um, people tell me, terrifying. It was terrifying to write. And my model, uh, always when I'm writing, I have one or two or three at the most books that I reread all the time that help me with that material. And one of the books that I, well, it's a great book also, but that I, we read a lot during, was The Heart of Darkness by uh, Joseph Conrad. And as a writer uh, alive or still alive, I owe so much to the writers who have come before me, to the great writers, because they show you the way.
1: Why did you try, he was hiding, he had been hiding in Vienna, hadn't he, as a healer?
2: No, no, in Belgrade, the very city where he was supposed to be wanted. Belgrade, but sorry. they didn't, uh, they, everyone knew it. He was in a, a pub each night, uh, um, playing on this thing called a guls, It's a bit of a dull instrument, to his own poetry with photographs of him on the wall. They knew where he was, but they weren't going to hand him over. Even though they had fired him from government, because he began to be too vain, too conceited. When they decided that they wanted to become member of the European Union, then the game is up. So then he's taken off the bus. But it wasn't Vienna, it was literally the place where he was supposed to be found. Well, anyone could have found him, it seems. So again, it's the, the, the deceit of politics that so much is done not for purity of heart, as Kierkegaard called it, but for impurity of um, getting ahead in politics.
1: Somebody down here with the microphone, yes.
0: My question was about um, Edna's writers Thank she's you. mentioned, which runs on from that question You said the writers who've gone before you. Can you hear me? What is yes, the question? Yes, what's the question? The question is, you mentioned authors who've meant something to you, you've loved and admired, but one you said in particular, you worship Dickens. Could you tell us why? What makes you...
2: Why,
1: why Dickens was so great for you? You so said important. you
2: worshipped him. Why literature is so no, great. No, no, why
1: Dickens, why Charles Dickens. As oh, God, Charles
2: Dickens was. is great. Yes, you <laughs> said I worshipped <laughs> him. great then. for anyone. I think all uh, certain english writers even though i live in england don't move or bestir me because they don't they don't have as much passion as i wish the brontes do and charles dickens i think charles dickens capaciousness his understanding of the world around him and his rendering it if you take bleak house bleak house is such a story of the, not only the corruption of society, but the the deferring. Cases in this court, uh, in Bleak House, it's all about people going to the court to try and get justice. It goes on and on and on. No justice ever comes. Money is lost, families are broken up, hopes are dashed. And there are a lot of other stories within the intricacy of Bleak House. And what Dickens does was, is to actually, you're living it. You see, the great test of a great book is to live it, not just to read it. So the immersion is so great in great writers like Dickens or Gogol uh, uh, or whatever. Uh, there's some resemblance between them in a way is that they not only depict a world, but that world becomes your world. And that is the secret of what great literature is. It's that secret by which the author, through some complicated and uh, in some ways heroic but also persevering way, makes it, I, I wrote lately about Sylvia Plath, whom I admire very much, and I read her poetry at the National Theater. It was a book called Poems That Make Women Cry, and I picked her. And I said, the reason Sylvia Plath makes me cry, it would be also true of Charles Dickens, they're totally different writers, is she made the transition from self to the created thing. Too much modern writing, in my opinion, is about the self. A very clever writers, a great use of the English, lots of words, too many words, if anything. But the transition is not made from author to create a thing, and Charles Dickens did that, does that, for school children, for all sorts. Uh, 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 Sylvia Plath did it, and the poem, I wish I'd had it here, but I've read you enough, spoken enough, was called Edge. And it's obviously a poem about just on the way to death. And she describes, um, oh, the poem is about it's, it's about this woman wearing a toga. And the toga is, a, not, is has, a, has a strange scroll on it. And then she mentions two pictures of white milk. Now, before Sylvia Platt killed herself, she left two glasses of milk for her children in this house in Chalcot, in Chalcot Square in London. So as I said, it would be too easy to just conflate the circumstances of Sylvia Platt's life with this great poem, because indeed, some of the facts, some of the things mentioned in it are actual facts that happened, but she does not make it a self-pitying poem. She makes it a glistening poem about experience and walking towards death. And to me, that is something unsurpassable, which is why I, of of the many, she was married to Ted Hughes, who is also a very great poet, Uh, but it's another example of the female poet or artist, not always in the public consciousness the same way as the male is, and that's the truth. I'm not, uh, many poets I admire, male, female. But the male, And my, my reason why I think that is the case, a male writer validates a male reader in his existence and validates some female readers write- as well. A female writer threatens rather than validates. I don't know why. It may be to do with the age-old terror of witches, but it is certainly the case. Sylvia Platt is as great as Ted Hughes. Not that one should be doing comparisons. I once said to Samuel Beckett, whom I really liked, and he was a very sensible man. I said to him, Samuel, I always called him Samuel. I thought Sam was too glib. I said, who is your favorite author? And he looked at me a little bit Caustic, if that's Yeah, he looked at me a little bit reprovingly, and he said, "Edna, there is no such thing. They are—if I like them, they are all my favourite authors." And I loved that. And I think that should be true for—I mentioned Sylvia Plath—should be true for woman or man. But it isn't. Not often. Not often. Not often enough.
1: I oh. take a final final question. Yes.
3: Thanks. And thanks, Edna. Um, just want to bring back, you mentioned uh, earlier the importance of fact in terms of history and the difficulty with revisionists' opinions and so on. So in writing, um, or I'm looking, I suppose, in relation to fact and fiction and the importance of validity of either or both, and in fiction, which is uh, often can... Or sometimes is the case that the, the writer is getting across try attempting to get across a, a life and, and literary truth. But often the facts or the, the events of the fiction become what people remember. So in a way you could say facts become distorted. Uh, just any comments on, on aspect of fact and fiction? Can you, can
2: you just tell me the pith of the question? The
1: pith of the question is that since fiction writers are so influential, they may leave, be, they may be responsible for the fa- for, for memory, for the way people remember historical events, and whatever the revisionists do, and I know you don't like them, they cannot capture, they cannot catch up with the, with what the fiction writers have left behind. Yes,
2: but does the, let me just sort of, if if I may simplify this, are you saying that? because it's true, fiction writers can distort, they can enhance, they can denigrate, but they usually, usually, and I'm talking of good writers, I'm not talking of bilious egomaniacs, they can, if you like, make more vivid the story than if it were to be told by a historian because they give flesh and blood to the Evelyn War, for instance, I don't know why it comes into my mind, wrote a, a, some, a brilliant trilogy uh, about, he, was a, he wasn't in the war, but he was sort of a, a, a correspondent or something. Ernest Hemingway, even a greater example, and I'm more familiar with his work because I love it. Ernest Hemingway wrote a great book called Farewell to Arms. And it is about the Second World War in which he was in an ambulance, Uh, he he drove an ambulance. Now, a soldier that might have survived the situation that Hemingway was in could also write that same book. But it would be different, not because either of them are necessarily liars, but because each of them are writing from their own selective Memory experience that is inescapable in either fiction or non fiction. And when John was asking me earlier about 1916 and all that, I was I mentioned I thought and then I forgot to mention an extraordinary book by E.H. Carr, and it's called The Making of History. And his point is and it's true. Well, and that's, he's not speaking of people maliciously maligning someone or saying that Robert Emmett was atti- had an attitude when he made his speech, I read that once, didn't like it by the way. But E. H. Carr's point was that each historian or novelist or poet selects the material from the situation and that's what he and her writes. So we can read them all and see which one to us feels truest. What feels truest to me about Hemingway's book, because it's also a love story as well as a war story, was the absolute particularity with which he wrote it. It's a great book, and I strongly recommend it to you. And it starts with a Hemingway character, obviously. It's told in the first person. And it starts with soldiers going down a road somewhere in Austria or Italy, somewhere in Europe and it's autumn time, this very time of year, and their boots stirring up the leaves as they march. And they carry on, and the leaves return. And what he does in the first paragraph is draw you in totally, unreservedly, to a world. And that is an amazing achievement. A historian writing that has the duty to just tell you how many soldiers there were and what. It, it, gives, it's, it gives you facts. Facts are fine. I'm not condemning them. But I want blood, <laughs> and I want flesh and blood as a reader.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Thank
2: you very much. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: fall out, what's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> oh. And what, a, what an honor and a privilege to have you here tonight. That's a, a small you. gift from the National Library. Thank you so much. Shall, you. I <laughs> Shall I shake it?
2: Shall I shake Just stay, stay until they take your mic. And for staying. Thank you, John.